All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 7. Starting this week, a two-part sermon in Jeremiah 7. Um, As distinguished from just spending two weeks in the chapter, this week I am going to preach the entire chapter and give just a, a very brief application And I'm going to focus next week on application primarily and and, and really exclusively. So, uh, whereas normally as I teach on any chapter or in any passage, uh, we have a, a period of understanding, right, where we understand what the Word of God says, and then the next uh, thing that we do is then we go into application and take that period of application. Uh, I, I felt it important this week that we uh, um, draw out the entirety of the chapter, and then due to the nature of our, the application, I'm going to be giving you uh, some history, some context and such within application. Uh, I thought that focusing next week on primarily a few concepts found in Jeremiah 7 and the application thereof um, would be appropriate. So that's what we're going to do. Walk through the exposition of this passage and we're going to see many of the same principles that we found over the past two weeks. That these people delighted in their sin rather than delighting in the Lord. And this brought about great judgment The people sought religious observance and hypocrisy over genuine faith, and this too brought about great judgment. But one of the things that we'll draw out, particularly over the, uh, we'll we'll, we'll emphasize next week, draw out uh, beginning this week, is the fact that their wickedness was not just Wicked deeds that were, it's not just they did something and and then they were punished or they did wrong and then they saw the consequence, but their evil built in their lives. It, It brought about a culmination that put them in a place that we would never imagine anyone that associated with the Lord would ever get to. Uh, it brought them to, uh, to places of sinfulness uh, that are far beyond just the individual choices that they made. And, and it built to a lifestyle. It built to, uh, to a darkness that had enveloped them that they, they, they simply did not see. Next time we're together, we're going to learn some history and we're going to see where some of these evils find their place even in in our culture today and throughout church history. Focusing on two tremendous evils that have plagued society, particularly in the last several generations. But today we do walk through the exposition and we are intending to get through all of Jeremiah 7. We'll begin in verses 1 and 2 where the Bible says this, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So today we enter into a new message from the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, We know that this is a new message based upon these literary cues that we see, right? Uh, We will see 
this statement, like we see here in chapter 7, verse 1, the word of the, that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, something to that effect. Then the Lord spake unto me, saying, and these transitions help us understand that we're going to something new, that, uh, that there was a message that Jeremiah gave, and now that message is over. We don't know how much time is between these messages. We don't know if there are, are gaps of, of minutes or if there are gaps of days or if there are gaps of hours or, or if there are gaps of months between these various messages. We know, generally speaking, how long the ministry of Jeremiah was. It's, it was uh, many years long, and we know the, these things. And so we, we just kind of take these in stride, right? We know that this is a new message, so we transition our minds ever so slightly into the thought that this is something new. This is a new time, maybe a new group of people. And we do, in fact, find in this context a different group of people that is being spoken to. Not that he's no longer speaking to Judah. Of course, we saw in one of the messages earlier in the book that he was speaking to the northern tribes of Israel. But we see here that Jeremiah is commissioned to a particular environment, and the environment to which Jeremiah is commissioned is the gate of Solomon's temple. So God tells Jeremiah, go stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Now, this would be, of course, the entrance to the national place of worship. This is where priests would gather. This is where laymen would come to offer their sacrifices unto the Lord. And recall what we read last week about God and his desire for obedience, right? What God really wants. He wanted the people to have faithful and obedient love to him. He didn't just want their sacrifices. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their obedience. So uh, re recall this idea as we now see Jeremiah stand in the gate of the temple, right? He's standing at the gate where people would enter in and he is proclaiming the words that we are about to read to all who will listen. He is pinpointing an audience that needs this message the most, but he's also going to find within this audience the group of people, if I can put it this way, who will be most resentful to hearing a message that tells them that their religious actions simply are not enough to please God. That it simply is not enough that they can just do religious things and thus make God happy even though their hearts are far from Him. And the message begins with quite a direct statement to God's intended audience. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at the gates of the worship, uh, to, to worship the Lord. God says, I am, I am speaking this to you, you that enter in at the gates, you that come to worship the Lord. And this is the beginning of the message in verses 3 and 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. So the message is simple. Amend your ways. Change what you're doing. Change how you're doing it. Make how you live and make what you do pleasing to the Lord. And if they do this, Jeremiah says, uh, as a proxy for the Lord, that God would bless them. That God would allow them to dwell in this place. What place? Jeremiah is pointing to the temple. You'll be able to dwell in this place. You'll be able to stay here. You'll be able to remain here. Now, this is a very, very important 
concept, it's important that we understand that Jeremiah is at the temple. And this is very important for us to understand this because he is speaking to people who are coming to worship at the temple and these people had a particular thought in their mind. And the way that this thought is, is elaborated in verse 4 is Jeremiah says, don't trust in lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. An interesting thing to th say three times. We might presume that as Jeremiah is saying this, perhaps he's pointing. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Are these? Are these? The idea being that he's saying this is the temple of the Lord. This is the these are the, this is the dwelling place of God. Don't be deceived by lying words saying this. The idea behind this statement, well, it was the temple of the Lord, right? Why, why, why is that a lying word that this is the temple of the Lord? The idea behind this statement, the thing that makes it lying words is that there were many prophets and priests who in insisted that because the temple of the Lord is the house of God, that he would never allow the city or that temple to be destroyed. And rather than seeing this as a blessing to be preserved, the nation saw it, saw it as a right to be exploited. In other words, they saw themselves as immune to a certain level of destruction because God's temple was there. That God, people can't, Jerusalem can't be overthrown. The temple's here. This is God's house. God wouldn't allow that to happen to his own house. And so they kind of thought that they lived within this protective bubble where, yeah, Enemies might get close, and yeah, the other cities of Jerusalem might, or of, of Judah might fall. But remember, he's speaking to those who are worshiping in the temple. Maybe these people say, look, I don't care if Hebron falls. I don't care if Bethel falls. I don't care if these places fall. Jerusalem will not fall. I don't care if those places fall. Jerusalem will not be overthrown. The temple is here. This is God's house. He will defend his house. He won't let it be overthrown. And God says, that's a major mistake for you to assume. Don't assume this. But to this point, that assumption had been kind of understandable. There had been many times in the history of the nation where their backs were against a wall and God had miraculously preserved them. And perhaps the best known one as it relates to the time after the temple had been built was in the days of Hezekiah. In the days of Hezekiah, the nation of Judah was invaded by the Assyrian army. This was not long after the Assyrian army had taken the entire nation of Israel captive, uh, into captivity. So we're talking some 100, 120 years uh, before what Jeremiah is saying on this day. And th at that time, remember, Israel had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And now they were beating at the door of of, of Judah. They were knocking at their door. They were stronger. They were wealthier. Their armies were massive and they were powerful. From a material perspective, Judah had absolutely no chance against the nation of Assyria. So the city of Jerusalem is surrounded and the Assyrian general is a man named Rabshakeh and he had a message for the king. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 through 22. The Bible says this, And Rabshakeh said unto them, this is actually specifically to the people, not yet to the king. He says unto the people, Speak ye now to Hezekiah. Thus saith the great king, 
the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon a staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust on him. But if ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God. Notice Lord there is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Rabshakeh invoked the name of Jehovah here. He didn't just say, If you trust in your gods. He actually said, We trust in Jehovah God here. Right? So he knows who Judah claims to serve. If ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, ye shall not worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So Rabshakeh says there's no kingdom with the strength to thwart them. He says, what are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in Egypt? He calls Egypt a bruised reed. He says they're weak. They have no power to be able to come against me. He says, and then if you trust in Jehovah, and this is where, of course, he misunderstands Jehovah. Of course, he's a pagan. He would misunderstand Jehovah. He says, isn't that the same God that when Hezekiah became king, he destroyed his altars and his high places? Well, no, right? He destroyed the high places that they worshipped in the name of Jehovah, but in fact, it was idolatry. But that's the idea. That's what Rabshakeh understands. That's what Israel had done, right? They worshipped the golden calf uh, of um, Jeroboam, and they called that Jehovah. So there was this mixed worship. And so Rabshakeh doesn't understand, but this is the idea. He says, your God can't stand up against me. Uh, isn't that the same God that, Jer that Hezekiah has been, has been ignoring, has, has slighted? You think he's going to stand up for you? He goes on to say in verses 29 through 35, as we give a brief survey of this, thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely... Notice again, it's Jehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered unto the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not unto Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine and every one of his fig tree and drink ye every one of the waters of his cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of, all, of oil, olive and of honey, that ye may live and not die. And hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered at all? his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath or of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Rabshakeh makes a very strong statement. It's, it's effectively a challenge at this point, right? Your God cannot save you. The gods of the other nations didn't save them. The God of Samaria, your sister nation, did not save them. 
The gods of no other land have been able to save them from our wrath. And he says, if you'll just come out, if you'll offer me a present, and if you'll come out in peace, then we'll leave. We'll let you, we'll let you get back to life. And then at some point, we're going to come for you. And we're going to take you out of this land. And we're going to put you in a different land. This is what they did with Israel. This is what they did with all of the nations that they conquered. They were a brutal conquering nation. And once they had conquered the nation, they would take those people. They would strip them from the land from their inhabitant, uh, from where they inhabited, and they would mix them among the Assyrian people so that it would break down their cultural distinctives. And by breaking down their cultural distinctives, they would not be interested, they would not have the will to rise up in rebellion. If you leave a people, if you, sub, if you subjugate a people, but then leave that people intact, then at some point nationalism is going to revive itself in that people. And that people is going to seek to cast off their oppressors. But if you take that people that you have subjected and you assimilate them, intermingle them with your own culture then it, and, and separate them one from another, then it breaks down the cultural distinctives and it creates a situation where they're less likely to, uh, to revolt. So we have that sort of an idea here. So King Hezekiah hears this decree and he responds this way in 2 Kings 19, 1 and 2. And it came to pass when Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. So Hezekiah mourns and he sends his people to go to Isaiah. This is, this is the Isaiah that writes Isaiah. This is, uh, this is the prophet Isaiah. He was ministering at this time, uh, some hundred years prior to Jeremiah here. And Isaiah tells them not to be afraid of Assyria. And he says this. He says, the general of Assyria, he's going to hear some tidings from home. And those tidings are going to cause him to turn around and go to his own land. And when he gets there, his own land is going to be destroyed. This happens. Rabshakeh hears of a war, an invasion while he's gone, and he heads back home. And he has to put his, hand, his, his plans for Jerusalem on hold. But lest Hezekiah think that God did this for him, Rabshakeh sends a letter to Hezekiah. And that letter says this. We read it in verses 10 through 13 of 2 Kings 19. Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of, the Assyria, what, of, the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? which my fathers have destroyed as Gozan and Haran and Resef and the children of Eden, which were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the cities of Sepharvaim, of Hena, of, of Iva? So Rabshakeh sends this letter reiterating to the king that God cannot deliver him, reminding him that the gods of all the other lands have no power. And Hezekiah receives this letter, and as he receives this letter, the armies of Rabshakeh still threatening. The Bible says he enters into the temple and he lays this letter before the Lord. And he prays to God and he says, God, vindicate your own name. Look what this guy is saying about you 
What are you going to do about it? Now, it's the response of the Lord, which is the object of our little study. Pastor, where are you going with this? Why are we studying 2 Kings when we're supposed to be studying Jeremiah? We're getting there, right? This is the object. God's message is one of indignance against Assyria for the blasphemy against him. And we read of this indignance in chapter 19, verses 32 through 35. God says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake. For my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night, the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So the whole army of Assyria is destroyed. It's amazing to think of the number of people that were in these armies in that day. A hundred and eighty-five thousand men destroyed by the angel of the Lord on that night, totally obliterating the army of Assyria. God had told Hezekiah he would defend the city and he would save it, but do you, do you recall why God said he would save it? He said, I will save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And this began to forge a conviction in the heart of the scribes, in the heart of the priests, that because God would save the city for his own sake and for David's sake, that means God would never allow this city to be destroyed. You can maybe see how that would kind of form, right? If we were in that age and various churches were, were within the walls of Jerusalem and we see these things come to pass and 185,000 in the army of Assyria were destroyed in one night, there would at least be a few people that say, God did this because he simply won't allow the temple to be destroyed. God did this because he simply won't allow the city to be destroyed. That might be a reasonable idea, but, but it's, a, it's still a wrong idea. That is not why God defended Jerusalem. That's not what God was saying here. What God was saying here is that he was going to defend his power and might against the blasphemies of Rabshakeh. That for his own name, he was going to defend the city because Rabshakeh said, nothing can save you. Your God can't save you. And God said, now, now I've been challenged. And when God is challenged, God defends his holy name. And so he defended his city. God was not going to allow the scorning against him and his power to go unnoticed. So he defended his name here. And this is actually the same principle by which Judah will be destroyed in Jeremiah. Follow this with me. By the principle of God defending his holy name, he, he defended the city against Rabshakeh some 100 years earlier. And by the same principle of God defending his holy name, he tells the nation of Judah in the days of Jeremiah that he cannot spare them. He must destroy them for the same reason he must save them a hundred years earlier. Because his name is being dragged through the mud and he needs to defend his name. 
His temple is being not destroyed physically, but destroyed spiritually by the wickedness of the people. And he has to defend his name. So God says, don't be fooled. Don't trust in lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as if somehow because these bricks are standing here and somehow because you have cherubims on your, your, your curtains and somehow because there's a brazen altar and a brazen laver, because those things are here, that somehow that means you can't be destroyed. God says, I'm going to defend my holy name. And if destroying the city is what it takes for God to defend his holy name, God says the city will crumble. So God tells them, don't think that my, the presence of my temple is somehow going to save you from evil. It is not going to work that way. Because the evil this time is not actually the nation of Babylon coming to overtake them. This time the evil is in the land itself. This time the evil that needs to be purged from the land are the people that are walking through the gates of the temple itself. Jeremiah is standing in the, the gates to the temple saying, you people are the reason why God cannot spare this temple because it is polluted by your false sacrifices. It's polluted by your wickedness. And we're going to see what that wickedness is as we go throughout the rest of this chapter. We read in verses 5 through 7, For if ye throughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye throughly execute judgment between man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. God seeks to correct their thinking here, right? It's not the presence of the temple that will cause them to be saved. It is not the presence of the city of David that will cause them to be saved. God says, if you want me to defend this city, then defend my name by obeying me. Then start doing right. Execute judgment. Root out corruption. Care for the innocent. Care for the fatherless. Care for the stranger. Care for the widow. God's heart is upon those that cannot help themselves. God's heart is upon the innocent. God desires judgment. God hates corruption. God hates it when evil is called good and good is called evil. And it's as they live in obedience to God that they can expect blessing. It's as they live in obedience to God that they can expect God to defend them. Not because of the bricks that are stacked one on top of another, but because of a heart that desires to please the Lord. But unfortunately, this was not the character of the people of, uh, that were walking in and out of the doors of the temple on that day. Verses 8 through 10. God says, Behold, ye trust in lying words, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. What a startling statement. It's not necessarily startling. It's not surprising at all <laughs> when we read about all of the abominations that they committed, right? From stealing and murdering and committing adultery and swearing falsely. The land had been utterly corrupted by evil and violence. But what is surprising, what is startling, is when they do all these things, they burn incense to Baal, they murder people, they steal they swear falsely. And then they come through the doors of the temple and they say, 
They, they put, a, they put a, a, a lamb on the altar and they say, I'm good now. All over. Now I can go back to doing what I was doing. We are delivered to do all these abominations because we put a lamb on, a, on an altar and we killed it and we burned it. So now we can go back to, to, to sinning because we've appeased God. And that, that, that's the idea. And that, that is what's startling. This attitude is deeply evil. But it's always been a temptation for those who have in any way, shape, or form been a recipient of some sort of grace or mercy, hasn't it? It's always a, a temptation in the heart of a human touched by sin to see how much they can get away with. And to think that, well, if there's some way I can have my cake and eat it too, right? If there's some way I can be forgiven for these sins and yet do these things that I still want to do, then let's do that. And God says, don't fool yourself into thinking grace and mercy means that, because it doesn't. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verses 11 and 12. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. So God asks, has this house become in your eyes a den of robbers? Because in my eyes it sure is. We spoke several weeks ago of the idea which God had espoused that the leaders in the land were getting rich off of the religious devotion of the people. Do you remember when we talked about that? And that the, the people loved to have it so? That the people uh, had been more than willing to give money to these false teachers because these false teachers tickled their ears and told them what they wanted to hear. And so they say, hey, as long as we have somebody in spiritual authority telling us this is okay, I want that guy as my pastor, right? I want that guy as my pastor that's going to look me in the eye, smile in my face and say, sure, you can sin. Go for it. Enjoy it. I want that. I'll give that guy my money because I want him to hang around because that's the guy that's going to make me feel good about myself. It was interesting. Uh, at the jail this past week, I came across a, a new guy and he sat down and he said, he said, I know the Bible very well. He said, I have been, I have been uh, exposed to the Bible for any number of years and he's struggling with addictions as many of these people do. And he sat down and he said, here's the thing. He said, I... Um, uh, I know the Bible very well and I'm in love with this woman and she has six kids and she's single and she's divorced twice and the Bible tells me I can't marry her, right? I said, right. And he said, and I'm looking for a loophole, so help me out here. So he said to me, he said, I'm looking for a loophole. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, sir, you're not going to be getting a loophole from me because there is no loophole in the Bible. And we spent the next 45 minutes walking through this. And by the end of the conversation, he looked into my eyes and he said, he said, Chaplain Wickler, I'm Chaplain Wickler there. He said, you didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, but you told me exactly what I needed to hear. He said, I thank God that I didn't sit down across from somebody who was just going to tickle my ears and tell me what I wanted to hear because of my story of how much I love this woman and how I found happiness for all the things, you know, that he tells me. I found happiness for the first time, bad childhood, yada, yada, and all of these things. And I look at him and I say, and, and he told me at one point, he said, so I can either choose happiness or I can choose God. And I said, sir, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. So we walked through it. We ironed it out. 
And he walked away thanking God that somebody was willing to tell him the truth rather than just tickle his ears. But the people didn't want that in the days of Judah. That's not what they wanted. The people wanted the loophole and they were willing to allow these false teachers to fleece them if only they can find the loophole. Right? If only they can have the loophole. So he spoke of that. And God says, this is what he sees. But he asks, do you see it too? Do you see it like I see it? And he reminds them of why it is they cannot say God will defend this temple. Why it is they cannot find security simply in the fact that the temple is the house of God. He says, go take a vacation. Take a few vacation days and go visit Shiloh. It's interesting because Jesus used this same analogy of the people in, in his day, right? That the, the den of thieves idea the, uh, uh, in regard to the people in the temple. But God says, go take a vacation to Shiloh. That was where my name was first set. And see what it looks like today. See what happened to Shiloh because of the actions of Israel. So in contrast to those who would appeal to the events in the days of Hezekiah and say, see, in the days of Hezekiah, God defended the temple and it did not fall, even though 185,000 people in an army were, were surrounding it. See, God will not destroy his temple. God says, let me give you another example. Let me, let me turn your eyes toward another historical event to remind you that it doesn't always work that way. And what God was most likely speaking of is, is the events that were initiated in the days of Eli the high priest and the early days of Samuel the prophet when he was still a child. Eli was the high priest. The nation of Israel was at war with the Philistines, if you recall the story. The Philistines were stronger. And they were very successful in defeating Israel. So the nation of Israel, having been defeated in battle had an idea. Let's call to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and let's get Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And then we'll win, because the Ark is here. They believed the mere presence of the Ark, like some sort of good luck charm, would cause them to win the battle. So we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So the people went to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. These were two wicked men, by the way. They were, they were wicked men. They were not like their father. Uh, they were not like Samuel. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. So the people send to Shiloh. They procure the Ark. Eli's two wicked sons bring the Ark to battle like some sort of good luck charm. And as it's coming into camp, everyone's like, yay, the Ark is here. That means the presence of God is here. That means we have to win because God will defend his Ark, because God will defend his presence we don't have to repent of any sin. We don't have to do what's right. We can simply manipulate God into fighting for us by putting this box in the middle of us. That's, that was it. That, that was the mindset. This box is blessing. Therefore, this box will, will bring, forcibly bring the blessing of God upon us. They just needed that wooden box. They didn't need to seek the Lord. They didn't need prayer. They didn't need holiness. They didn't need righteousness. They didn't need obedience. Just the box. 
And because the wooden box was there, God would be forced to protect them. So what happens? Verses 10 and 11, And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. So Israel is destroyed. The ark is taken. Hophni and Phinehas die. Now, did the ark of the covenant matter to God? It absolutely mattered to God. We'll see that the Philistines take that, the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it to their cities. And everywhere where, where the Ark of the Covenant goes, they, they're plagued. People are dying. And they place it in front of their gods and their gods are, are, are on their faces in the next morning before the Ark. Right? And so the Philistines say, hey, we've had, the, 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 we've had this box for long enough. And they send it to the next city and say, you guys now can, can gloat over the box. And, and then that city's plagued. And, and to the point where they literally send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. They don't want it anymore. God is cursing them for it being with them. They want it gone because this God is, is powerful. This, this God is defending the Ark of, of the Covenant. So it did matter to God. But could the Ark of the Covenant thus manipulate God into blessing a disobedient people? Absolutely not. So, what happens? The Ark is taken. The message comes back to Shiloh that the ark has been taken, that Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and Eli falls back in his chair because he was a fat man and broke his neck, and he died. The high priest is dead. The high priest's two sons are dead. The ark of the covenant is gone. Shiloh becomes a wasteland. Shiloh is done. The, 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 the tabernacle has no function in Israel until David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. This is the idea here. When God says, consider Shiloh. He says then in verses 13 through 15, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and now because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord. And I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not. And I called you, and ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all of your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. That would be the northern tribes of Israel. So God says, your fate will be no different than the fate in the days of Shiloh when that ark that they trusted in was taken and they were smitten and Shiloh became nothing in the land. God says, I'll do the same thing to my temple if you do not repent because you're trusting in the bricks rather than trusting in God. So God then commands to Jeremiah and he says this, Verses 16 through 19. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Jerusalem and in the streets of, Jer uh, cities of Judah, excuse me, in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood and the fathers kindle the fire and the women knead their dough to make quakes, cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? 
Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? So God directly instructs Jeremiah, this is fascinating to me. He says to the prophet, don't pray for this people. Don't intercede for them because, simply put, you will be wasting your words to pray for this people. What a terrifying thought. You know, the Bible talks about God hardening, the hardening of God among those who reject Him. That at some point, when God has reached out again and again and again to a person, and that person hardens himself, that God may just stop reaching. That when God has convicted again and again, God may just stop convicting. Well, what about the point where things get so serious, where a nation is so rebellious, that God says to His faithful, don't even pray for this people because your intercessions will do no good. I will not hear them. I will not regard them. Your prayers are a waste because your intercessions will fall upon deaf ears. The only thing thus that could possibly intercede for this people is their own repentance. God will not allow anyone to stand in the gap. Right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That uh, even if the righteous, God says in in Jeremiah, look and see if there's but one righteous person I'll spare the city. And there wasn't one. We correlated that to what God would say in Ezekiel's day. That even if Job and Daniel and, who's the third one? Noah, were in the city, that God would not spare the city, right? That their intercession would do no good because the city had been so corrupted. It's the same idea here. Jeremiah, you're a righteous man. You love the Lord, but your intercession for this people will do no good. The only thing that can stop the judgment of God is is repentance. God says, do you see what they do in the streets of Jerusalem? We might expect the actions of the city to be like those of some city of sinfulness in our age. It would be as though God would be pointing at a city of sin like a Las Vegas or a New Orleans or wherever it might be or San Francisco and he would point and say, do you see what they're doing openly in the streets? Do you really think I can pardon that just on intercession? God says that they kindle fires and we see everyone involved in this. The children are gathering the wood the men are starting the fires, the women are kneading their dough, and they're making cakes in order to worship the Queen of Heaven. They're pouring out drink offerings to other gods. Now this Queen of Heaven idea is one of two ideas that we're going to park on next week. I want to get into this with you. It's a well-known term that has been used in pagan cults for millennia, and it's also very well-known in the Catholic Church. And I want to talk about it, and I want to give you the history of what it was that they were worshiping when God says, you are worshiping the Queen of Heaven. But what God is saying here is effectively this. This city is asking for judgment. They are doing everything in their power to make God angry at them. And in fact, God is now very angry at them. They succeeded. We continue, verses 20 to 23. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and upon beast and upon the trees of the field and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Put your burnt offerings upon your sacrifices and eat flesh. 
For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. So these statements are very similar to what we covered last week, right? The idea that God, as a matter of fact, I quoted this passage last week when I was walking through the passages of Scripture that talk about God's desire to have obedience above sacrifice. And God tells them, you've ignored my commandments. You've refused to love God as I've called you to love. You've refused to obey God as I've called you to obey. You've refused a relationship. You only want association for the benefits that it brings to you. And this is something which God, simply put, is unwilling to allow. God is not our good luck charm, which we keep in our bags for when things go wrong. And then we pull him out like a genie in the bottle and we rub him. And we say, God, I'm going to serve you this week. Now help me. God, I'm going to go to church so that you'll, you'll help me. God, I'm going to give something to someone so that you'll help me. God is not in the business of bartering. God is not in the business of being manipulated. This is not how God works. God is the exalter of the humble. He's the lifter up of the lowly. He's the one who blesses them that are poor in spirit. He is the one that blesses the meek who will inherit the earth. He is the one that blesses them that mourn, for they shall be comforted. God loves them who come to him for who he is, not for what he can do for them. And those that seek God in this manner will find him to be all that they could ask for and more. And those who seek to manipulate God into some measure of physical advantage for themselves will find themselves sorely disappointed. God says as much in verses 24 through 26. God says, But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck, and did worse than their fathers. God says this people have instead ignored him. He sent his servants. He sent the prophets to call them. He sent uh, his, his uh, prophets and his priests and his scribes to call the people back to him. And they have not listened. He says instead of going forward, you've gone backward. You've gone the wrong direction. You've gotten worse. You've hardened your hearts. Have you ever seen this before? It's not so much a, a thing. You can, you can kind of see humans harden their neck. Uh, but it's particularly kind of one of those things that you can see in animals. Where uh, horses or, or, or dogs, where you tell them to do something. I call out to my dog and, and I want her to come. And she kind of does this little thing where she cocks her neck and like, I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, my wife sent me a picture of my daughter. My wife is in Georgia. And my daughter, Erin A., gets into these little moods from time to time where she, she, she likes to ham for the camera but every once in a while she gets in one of these moods and one of the pictures is her on this little bike and her eyes are just like this. Like, like so purposefully not looking at the camera. Like as, as purposefully as possible in that mood. I'm just, I'm not going to look at the camera. I'm not looking at you. It's not going to happen. And that's the idea there that she kind of hardened herself. You can see the tension as she just looks down like I am not going to look at that camera. That's the idea here. You have hardened your neck. You're being stubborn. You have purposed to resist 
They've shut their ears to wisdom. And there comes a point when those under an authority shut their ears to wisdom that that authority must lay down the hammer and bring them into submission. Verses 27 to 29. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer. Remember, who is, that, who is this that he's talking to? He's going to talk to the people at the gate. God says, you're going to say all these words to them at the gate of the temple, and they're not going to listen to you. Verse 28. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouths. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places. For the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. So God says, Jeremiah, continue to speak, but they're going to continue to ignore you. And here Jeremiah is. He's standing at the gate of the temple. He's speaking to the people whom one would expect to be the most interested in this message, right? The most devout in Israel, in in Judah. But they aren't interested in the word of the Lord. They're only interested in what they think God can do for them. They will not listen. They will not be corrected. They will not delight in the law of the Lord. Truth has no bearing in their decision-making process. God calls them to repent, to cut off their hair. That would be the, the symbol of mourning. That they would cut off the ornament of their grace as a woman who in, in mourning would cut off her hair. As a man in mourning would shave his head as a sign that the, the, the ornament of their, their power and of their splendor has been lost as they mourn in, in their grief. And as God has been describing this, He has been describing a process of sin upon sin and upon sin, of murder and adultery and theft and idolatry, and it leads to a culmination. And we find this culmination expressed in verses 30 to 33. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Therefore, behold, the day, days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet, Till there be no place, and the carcasses of the people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven, for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. So God describes the culmination of this evil. He says, You've taken your abominations, that would be their idols, and you've put them in my house. Literally, they had put idols in the temple of God. We see that clearly in Ezekiel, if you want to cross reference with the visions that God saw. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. Not in depth, but a little bit. God says, then you've taken and you've built high places in Tophet, which was a location in the valley of Hinnom. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. It was the valley just south of Jerusalem. The valley which Jesus, in his day, called Gehenna. The valley of Hinnom. At this time, the valley of Hinnom was a fertile valley, a fruitful valley. And they had taken that valley and they had built up high places in that valley. And they had, what the Bible says, 
burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. A demonic sacrifice of evil to the god Molech. And this is the second topic that we're going to focus in on next week. We're going to focus in on the concept of the Queen of Heaven and what that means. We're going to focus in on this concept of the sacrifices to Molech. So evil was this place in the eyes of those who returned from captivity that, as I mentioned, it became Gehenna, became a trash heap. But in this day, God says, here's what's going to happen to this valley. The valley which you call Hinnom is going to eventually be called the Valley of Slaughter. And it's going to be called the Valley of Slaughter because so many of you are going to die in that valley that there's not even going to be enough room to bury you all. And, and, and then the birds are going to come and they're going to pick your carcasses clean and there's not even going to be anyone alive left in the land to chase the birds away, much less to bury anyone. And that comes from the sin that was done in this valley. We're going to focus in on that next week and understand the grave danger, the grave evil of human sacrifice. And we're going to again see how that has bearing upon our culture today through the evil of abortion. Our text concludes in verse 34. God says, Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. God says there will be no more enjoyment, there will be no more functioning civil society. God is warning them that He is going to cause it to cease. And we've seen that several times. We see it again in a slightly different way to a slightly different audience. And I simply want to say one thing. As I mentioned, next week is going to be application. I'm not going to dwell on application this week. It's, a, it's truly a two-part sermon. This week was understanding. Next week is application. But I do want to bubble up to the surface a thing which I've said several times. We covered it, we, we, we considered it last week, we considered it the week before, we've seen it throughout, but just a reminder to bubble up to the surface as we walk through this week. Remember, God's people are not immune from God's judgments. Forgiveness is not allowance, grace is not license. I think that as we read through Jeremiah, this is one of the things that bubbles up to the surface so clearly and so directly. This is one of the things that, draw, that, that Jesus draws on directly throughout the course of his ministry. That when Jesus says, as we read last week, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, that we should not continue in sin that grace may abound. It is the same principle that goes all the way back to the beginning. And it's found so clearly in Jeremiah that you cannot take God's mercy and God's grace and say, because of that, I can openly and freely sin. It simply does not work that way. In God, there is so much freedom. Praise God for that. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient, Paul says. But if when you look at the freedom of God, We've got young people that are growing up. And as you grow up, you get more freedom. You get your license, go to college. You find some measure of autonomy. You have a job. And with each of these comes some level of freedom. And just like in your life, young people, if you see freedom, the freedom that your parents give you as a license to do wrong, 
you have really missed the point. And you'll find for that freedom that you think you have um, consequences, spiritual, physical, and otherwise. When you look at the freedom that God gives you, if you see license, then you are positioning yourself for some of the consequences, not literally, in other words, it's not like someone's going to come into your house and tear your walls down. But what I'm saying is the spiritual consequences of the people, the spiritual bankruptcy of the people, the blindness of the people, the inability to see God's goodness, the inability to, uh, to, to see repentance, the being led astray into the darkness of the world, being ravaged by sin, you are positioning yourself for those same things. But if when you look at the freedom the, the, the freedoms that you have, you see those freedoms within the realm of God's grace, within the realm of God's allowances. In the same way that young people, I hope that you see the freedoms that you've been given within the realm of your parents' protection, within the scope of your parents' love. When we see things in this way, then we are positioned for blessing. Remember what Psalm 1 said a couple weeks ago? That the rebellious are as the chaff which the wind blows away. But that those who delight in the law of the Lord, they are like the tree planted by the rivers of water. I simply want to bubble that up to the surface. If God's repeating it, then we would do well to remember it, as, uh, to repeat it in our hearts and our minds also. Next week, come ready to learn some interesting things. It will be academically stimulating, for sure. But more so, I hope it opens your eyes a little bit. Be ready to take what we learned this week and draw out a couple more applications that are going to touch us today and to understand some things about the church and about society, the society which we live in, and the broader church as it functions. And may God help us to live in the distinctions to be a people that honor Him above all else. Let's Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.